like for you to turn with me tonight to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. If I had to give a title to the message tonight, and I trust we'll get there sooner rather than later, but it is this, let us have peace with God. Let us have peace with God. And I understand that's not precisely how this verse reads, but I think I'll prove to you tonight that it can be read that way. And it's a command and exhortation for us to experience something that we should be experiencing. So Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 reads like this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this sits in the very beginning or maybe just after the beginning of probably the most scholars would agree one of the most profound books in our Bible. It's viewed as being a theological treasure because it's so diverse and yet every topic in which it touches, it's so rich and abundant. It's a difficult thing for anyone to overstate the importance of the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, some have said that it's important for a child of God to memorize the book of Romans. And if that's true, I failed. I've not attempted it. I don't think I would be able to do it. But I can tell you that after 40 years of walking with my beloved Lord, the truths in the book of Romans have become part of who I am. I can't recite every verse verbatim, but the themes that are there are precious, profound, promising, just beautiful. There's a main theme in this book, and some will debate what that theme is. But frankly, I think the theme is found in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. The Apostle Paul is led by the Spirit of God to do a thorough exposition of what the gospel is. And if you want to know what the gospel is, I think if you study the book of Romans, you'll understand it. You'll find out what God means when he says he has some good news for mankind. Of course, there is the exposition of the, what it all means with the gospel in the form of words and doctrine, but I think there's another portion of exposition that is just as important. What had me thinking along the lines of tackling the book of Romans on Wednesday night in our services was actually verse chapter 16. I just picked up the Bible one day and began reading in chapter 16, and I was noticing all the personal statements made by the Apostle Paul to individuals, and those individuals like Phoebe, uh, like Priscilla and Aquila, and on and on and on were people who were not what they once were. They were different than how they came into this world. And it was something that was not related to their maturity, just growing up, is that they had come into contact with the living Christ. 
They were different people because of that. And as you begin to read the personal relationship that he had with those individuals, this bond that existed between them was no bond that could be forged by uh, belonging to an organization that man had made. It was a bond that had been forged by God above. And that became so precious to me that I wanted to learn more about how this bond came to be. And, of course, I go back and I begin to read through the book of Romans, and I'm immediately hit with Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, the power of God in saving an individual and how he can do it is a marvelous thing. It benefits us, doesn't it, if we go back and not only read the conversion stories of those that are in our Bible, but if you pick up history books and down through history so far, since the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene and had his wonderful message of deliverance from sin, people have told how he saved them. And remarkable story after remarkable story. I have my own. I'm not ashamed to share it. As a young man, 19 years old, far from God, I had experienced all that the world had to offer as far as I knew. And in the providence of God, he had made me see that all of it was not satisfying my soul. And two individuals came to me one day at the bottom of Auburn University's Haley Center. All of my friends that were there at the same time distanced themselves. They said, Collie, come on, let's go to lunch. I said, no, I don't want to go to lunch today. I'd rather just stay here. I rarely did that. And while I sat there, these two young men came and shared with me a story that was old, but a story that that day changed my life. The first thing they asked me, and you can understand where this comes from, because in the 70s, this was the common way for evangelism to take place. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? And this is where I was. I would go to hell if there is one. I was a skeptic. Those young men patiently carried me through and quickly carried me through the word of God. That it, and one thing that they presented to me that caught my attention was John 10.10. 10. I have come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. And though I didn't articulate it to those boys, young men, as far as they knew, there was no impact. But that day I heard, this is something that resonates with me. I don't have abundant life. And he's promised to give it to me. They didn't stop there. As far as they know, knew, they were talking with someone who wasn't listening. And they told me my sin had separated me from God. They didn't leave me there. They told me that Christ had died for my sins. 
You understand, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church where I'm sure the gospel had been preached, but I'd never heard it. Never. That day I heard it. And the condition was simple. Believe that Christ died for your sins. I believed that message that day. That evening, when I went home, I was a different young man. I told my mother and father what had taken place. They had been praying for me. I rarely saw my father cry, but that night I saw him cry. Tears of joy that the Lord had done for him, for me, what he had been praying that he would do. And that was in 1977. John 10.10 was the pivot point to change me forever. Now let me tell you another story. I picked up this periodical called The Voice of of the Martyrs. Some of you may get it. Look at, if you do get it, uh, look at this period's issue and there's a story about two young men who live in Iran where by the way I didn't know this but it is illegal for you to have a copy of the word of God in Iran illegal you can't have one you can't distribute a copy of it but it's illegal so but that somehow the word of God got into the hands of these two boys. They were brothers, and they didn't know that it happened to one or the other, but they found a copy of the word of God. It was placed in their possession. They read its words. The Lord graciously saved both of them. They didn't know that they were saved individually, separately, but they were. But it came to pass that one day they left a copy of a portion of the word of God on the table, and their father, who was a devout Muslim, raised them in a Muslim home, saw it, crumpled it up, threw it out into the yard, and said, you don't understand, do you? Allah is going to be angry with us. We're going to have judgment on our house because you have dared to bring into our house a copy of the word of God. And by the way, that's how the Muslim lives. They live in fear of God. They have no knowledge of the mercy of God or the love of God. So they throw that out. He throws it out, and the son says, Dad, just read it. Just read it. And guess what he does in a private moment? He picks it up, and he turns to John 10. But he doesn't come from a Western culture where you can get whatever you want and find that it doesn't satisfy the soul. He comes from a place where the culture is a God who suppresses and oppresses people has no love, has no concern, really, except for try to find some way that these individuals will trip up and fall, and then he'll punish them. But when he turned to John 10, guess what he read? I am the good shepherd, and I give my life for the sheep. And this Muslim man says, you know, I was a shepherd many years ago. I love my sheep. The point I'm making tonight by telling you these two stories is that God in his great wisdom and power is able to take individuals 
whom he has purposed to save from eternity past. Bring them in contact with his word. It will be sufficient for their need. Meet precisely what their condition is. Meet them right where they are and will change them forever. That man believed the gospel and joined his sons in the happy gathering of those who are parts part of the family of God. This is what we have in the book of Romans. In the 16th chapter, we, we're seeing family conversation. We're seeing something that God has done. Oh, what wonders he has done among these people. And the book of Romans includes this part of the exposition of the gospel, which is changed lives. It's not just words. It's not just doctrine. It's changed lives that speak to the power of the gospel. And that's what you have in Romans 16. This gospel message is something that has to be clear. It has to be explained. If it's so important in the economy of God, you, it must be uh, given to men in a way that they will understand what it entails. And so the book of Romans has immediately for us to see that men are condemned. My friend, you, you don't hear the gospel if you don't hear that God condemns men. So he immediately takes, Paul does, the Spirit of God does, he takes us into God's courtroom. And when he takes us into the courtroom, the one who is sitting with the robe as the judge is God himself. He's also the one who's given the law. And he begins to analyze two classifications of men. There are different ways to classify men, but here are two ways, and there's no, you're either in one or the other. There's the Gentile and there's the Jew. It makes it clear in the book of Romans that the Gentile has not been given the Mosaic law. But the Jew had. But it also makes it clear, the judge does, that the Gentile, though not given the Mosaic law, is still guilty. You cannot be guilty before God if there's no law to break. Can you? What law? What, what about the people who lived before the Mosaic law? What law did they break? They were all sinners. And then we have the Apostle Paul explain that the Gentile has the law of God written in the heart. And though us, we have the word of God to, before us, it's easily accessible to us and we'll flip through its pages and we'll see the law and it's articulated in the Mosaic law and we'll, we'll We'll evaluate ourselves against it, and we'll, we'll know we're guilty. But before the Mosaic Law, and for the Gentiles in general who may have never heard of the Mosaic Law, they're guilty too. The Apostle Paul says about these Gentiles that they're guilty because they had this law of God written in their heart, and they have turned from it. 
they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And by the way, this is not just ancient history. History proves the point up to the point the Apostle Paul writes it, and it has continued to prove the point, but it's not ancient history. It's taking place today. Isn't it interesting when you read Romans chapter 1 where he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. He's not talking past tense. He's talking present tense that it's entirely possible to have the wrath of God exhibited upon living men because they know the truth and they reject the truth. There's nothing wrong with us taking the law of God as it's presented in the Ten Commandments and presenting it to men, but I want to tell you that God has already written his law in the heart of all men. And they know when they do something against his law, which, by the way, is consistent in principle and through and through purely so with the Ten Commandments. There's no disparity between the two. They're both pure and they're both holy, But all men will recognize that they're condemned. And isn't it interesting that God does not take this rebellion against his law sitting still? He does demonstrate wrath against men. Have you ever considered what his wrath looks like? When you look in the New Testament and you read, Paul will say he's delivered us from the wrath to come. You read in the book of Revelation and you find out that when the Lord Jesus comes again, he comes not as a savior but as a judge. He'll be pouring out his wrath upon men. And by the way, those men upon whom his wrath will be poured will not be saying, oh, we should have not done such harm to Mother Earth. We should have been more concerned about the climate. We should have been concerned about nature. You know what they're saying because they know this is true. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb of God. So his wrath can be so obvious. So it's unmistakable. But then there are other manifestations of his wrath that if we didn't have our Bible to explain it, we wouldn't know. And then he talks about one of the most basic parts of human behavior. Relationships between men and women that become perverted. And that's evidence of the wrath of God on the people. Why? Because they're guilty. What about the Jew? And Paul labors this point because can't you just, I mean, he's a Jew, he knows. He's not talking about something he doesn't know about. But can't you almost see that he sees that the Jews back and say, wait a minute, that's them, not us. You have the oracles. The Son of God came into this world through your line. But oh, by the way, this Bible that says thou shalt not commit adultery, 
do you commit adultery? You know what the obvious answer was? They committed adultery. You know, the Lord, when he came and moved among men, he, he identified that particular generation an evil and adulterous generation. It wasn't just spiritual adultery. Some people would say that when he had this woman who had committed this horrible sin, and he says to these that are gathered around, you know, let's stone her. He says, you that are without sin, let him cast the first stone. Some people would say that those scholarly religious elite were all guilty of adultery. And they knew it. So you can't hide you behind your privilege having the oracles of God. Having the Son of God come into this world through the line of Judah. Being a Jew, you can't hide behind that. He's looking at you. And you're guilty. And then he concludes it all by saying we're all guilty before God. There's none righteous. No, not one. And then he pivots. And he tells us about grace. My friends, this is a message that that is still powerful today. I know we're living in a time in a circle where it seems as if there are fewer and fewer that believe, but it's still powerful today. And the powerful message is powerful because of the darkness of our condition outside of Christ and the marvelous glory of his grace, unmerited favor. He then makes the point in the book of Romans. What you need to understand is that this exalted state that I'm about to describe in more detail, when you came into the courtroom guilty, I'm going to tell you that you can be right in his sight. But this exalted state will not come to you by your works. He belabors that point. It, it, it's the, one of the hardest things I think that is true about mankind is to dismantle their own trust in their own works. But the Bible says that works do not justify man before God. By the works of the law shall what? No flesh be justified in his sight. So it begins to talk about grace. And then we get to that fifth chapter in verse 1. Where he says, having been justified, we have peace with God. The justification, which by the way is, is a legal term, you know that. It is that which God does as judge. He has the prerogative to do. He can declare someone guilty. He can declare someone right. But he is just. He's not going to by fiat declare you right in his sight without some justification for it because of his nature. He's going to be just and the justifier of him that believes. So what he's going to do is he has sinners before him 
And he has devised a plan whereby those sinners who are guilty before him can have their sins atoned for, and the way he does it, he lays on his son their sins. He exacts from his son all of the guilt of all of their sins. He's pleased to do it as Isaiah 53 does it. He becomes, Christ does, the sin offering. And when he does that, he says, okay, I'm satisfied. And you're justified. And of course, it carries with the idea too, not only of being declared right in God's sight, but the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. Not only our guilt for our sin being taken care of, but the righteousness of Christ being put to our account. So we have complete justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This cannot be a cannot be glossed over. The big issue is, if he's done this, how does it become mine? I I need to know. This is not trivial. How does his work become something that becomes beneficial to me? And the conduit he describes by faith. And we, you, you know these things. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before, but you'll rejoice with me that you're hearing it again, won't you? And the fact is that faith is not mental assent. Faith is an absolute reliance upon what he's done. To the exclusion of everything else. And when one has exercised that kind of faith, They have peace with God. But he's really saying, let us have peace with God. You say, well, Brother Colley, that's not necessarily something I've heard before. Well, frankly, it wasn't something I had heard before. But let me tell you what I read. (laughs) And it didn't come from an unreliable source. They tell us that whether whether this is going to be a, a statement of fact we have peace with God, or an exhortation, let us have peace with God, depends on one letter in a word. It's the very first letter of that word, and it is the letter Omicron or Omega. And if it's one or the other, it's going to determine whether it is a statement or an exhortation. Alexander McLaren had this to say in the rendering of the revised version, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The alteration is very slight, being that of one letter and one word, the substitution of a long O for a short one. The majority of manuscripts of authority read, let us have peace with God, making the clause an exhortation and not a statement. So I think We are not wrong to say it is an encouragement. Knowing what we do about what God has done, 
Let us enjoy the peace that we have with God. It's firmly founded in his purpose and his work. Enjoy that peace. Know it. Enjoy it. Some time ago, um, I was told about a friend of ours, two friends of ours who have a daughter, young daughter, very gifted and, and just a beautiful girl. I saw her in the coffee shop just the other day. Uh, she is gorgeous. And she just graduated from the University of Alabama. We, I'm sorry that she went to Alabama, but she did, and she graduated. And uh, she is now determining what she's going to do with the rest of her life. But the story that they told us, the parents told us about this dear girl of theirs was that she was attending a Baptist church and and um, she heard the gospel and she believed it. Had the joy associated with it. Because she knew she had peace with God. But for whatever reason, her youth pastor kept telling people, if you see sin in your life, you're not converted. And this girl, this girl is a thinker. You know, you run into people like that. They think things through. She took this to heart. She said, well, maybe I'm not saved. And it was so bad. She was so troubled about it that she had to go get help. Now, it is true <coughs> that saints sin. I was floored recently when someone questioned why do you speak so much about the sins of the saints? Well, because saints sin. But the relationship that we have with God upon conversion from a biblical standpoint is different now. We're children. Purposed, yes, to be his children from eternity past, but in experience, we immediately upon conversion because of the Spirit of God coming within, what does he tell us? How does he, how does he affect communication? We begin to cry, Abba, Father. Listen closely to someone who's praying. When they pray, if they can only say, Dear God, you wonder, do they know God? It is as instinctive for a person who's been born again to say, Abba, Father, as it is for a baby when they cry to begin to ask for their mother and ask for their father. And when the individual gets to that relationship through faith in Christ and they sin, The first letter, the first epistle that John has to believers, it's not only that you might know. That's the primary thing. But it's also that you might know how to deal with your sin. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Aren't you 40 years down the road now? I'm so thankful for that truth. And yes, when a child of God sins, they, 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 they sense some distance from their father. I, I could I tell you years ago when I was a little one, uh, for a period of time, my dad walked to work for 30 years. We lived that close to the cotton mill. He had a path that he trod that was something that he, he created because every day, two times a day, he was walking the same way. And for a short period of time, I walked with him to school because the school was here, the mill was here. They're right close to each other. And we would go so far, and Daddy would go to the right, and I would go to the left. See this evening, Daddy. But one morning, I don't know what I did. I know it wasn't him. I really do. It never was him. Not because he didn't own any guilt. It's just that he was such a kind man. I miss him. But I must have said something. And you know, I wouldn't even walk beside my daddy to school that day. I walked behind him. Anything change about my dad? No. The problem was with me. But there was a distance created. And that's the way I view it when a child of God sins. You don't sin against your heavenly father without something happening and a distance that sometimes is almost felt can occur how do you take care of that problem it's not an unsolvable problem you confess the sin which means that you say the same thing as he does that's what confession is you say the same thing And you know what he is? He's always ready to forgive. Always ready. And then we're back in fellowship, you see. And we begin to walk together again. And that's what this young girl should have been taught. Remember, young believer, that things are different now. You have a different attitude towards sin, but you still have the sin principle with you. There are going to be times when you sin. Don't let that destroy your peace. Let us have peace with God. Let us enjoy the peace with God. If it's fractured by our sin, let us confess the sin and move on. You say, well, this is kind of a different view on things. Well, but it's not inconsistent with another phrase. Keep yourselves in the love of God. We're told, take action to keep yourself basking in the love of God. If there's something that gets you out of tune with his vast and glorious love for you, do something that would get you back into that wonderful position of knowing that you're loved by your father. And I think this is entirely consistent. These two truths harmonize in my mind. They come together gloriously. Let us have peace with God. Do those things that will keep you there. Enjoying that peace. Final thing tonight. I was 
I'm thankful for dinner time discussion. And it's interesting when you have a 17 year old that's still at home, that you know, things are taught, and this particular 17 year old is sensitive and aware, hears things, and he's heard enough for his antenna to go up when things don't seem consistent with what he's heard. On top of that, I have a wife who spends a lot of time in the medical profession. She hears about things and she comes into contact with people that have issues that sometimes they feel free to share with her. And one of the things that <clears throat> she heard the other day was a physician acquaintance of hers shared with her that his wife had begun to question everything that she believed about Christianity. You ever heard of the deconstruction movement? Look it up. Christian deconstruction. It's a real thing. What people are doing is that they are saying, okay, this is what we have believed. We've been taught this all of our life. Let's reevaluate it. Let's break it down. And then we'll put it back together. But what's happening is people are breaking it down. But what they're doing is they're trying by their reason to put it back together and they're falling apart. Some of them have completely, and this physician's wife, is. she says she has completely denied the faith. And she's raised children in a Christian home. She's raised children in a Christian school. But now she's denying the faith. What do you do when you have situations like that? Number one, on, on this deconstruction movement, I, the Lord's not baffled by us tearing things down and looking at them critically as long as we do it sincerely and as long as we go back to his word and say, when I put this thing back together, this is going to be my basis for defining what it really is. And that's where they miss the boat. But these things are coming, they're, they're like waves. And how do you find yourself safe in an environment like this? You have to keep yourself in the love of God. You must keep yourself in the peace of God. Let us have peace with God. Let us understand why we have peace with God. Let us bask in what he's told us about the peace of God that he has secured for us Stray not from the word of God. Avail yourself often to the teaching of the word of God. Avail yourself often to prayer. Avail yourself often to the reading of the word of God. Reverently reading it. And that way you will keep yourself and enjoy the peace of God. Let us have peace with God. Let us keep ourselves in the love of God.